describe myself as a uh, kind of a mild preaching individual or a overly emotional guy or gentle. My wife would agree with that. I wouldn't say I'm innately gentle, you know what I mean? And what I'm trying to say is, you know, I don't, I don't drive around feeling this emotional reality in my heart a lot. Or, you know, I'm not really one of those people who's subject to, like, feeling depressed or down a lot. And yet I was driving up today, and I found myself <coughs> feeling like that and puzzling a little and, and ultimately just going, you know, God... I mean, everybody goes through a time like that, right, or whatever. Or maybe there's a circumstance. I mean, then it's understandable. <coughs> but if you've got stuff pretty well cleaned up around you, you know what I mean, and you've got no reason, then, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that gets through my thick head. And I'm just like, you know, what's kind of going on here, you know? Can't get the stink off, <laughs> you know? And, well, here's where I kind of landed with it, and... Before I do that, I just want to ask a quick question because probably a lot of you are, have either a preaching or some type of teaching influential ministry where you're ministering the word, or if, if not, in your devotional life. I, you can apply the question the same thing, which is how many of you regularly feed your flock or feed yourself on the second coming? That's all right. Put them up. All right. And the sense of of loss. Let me take it a step further. For those of you who feed your flock, is it by just talking about the end times or is it actually about teaching them the scripture? Showing them the scripture, showing them the paradigms, showing them the realities that are brought into fullness. Teaching them, teaching them with specific understanding, imparting specific understanding. So how many of those who raised your hands, how many of you are there? Right on. Okay. Now, we can all agree with the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, instructing them to what? Obey. Obey everything I taught you or instructed you or commanded you. Why is it that the Messiah spent the lion's share of his last moments on the earth with his disciples, teaching them and telling them about his return? Why is it that he commanded them to watch and wait, to be sober, to be awake, to anticipate, to look for, to have understanding, to know the signs to know when it's the minor signs trickling and to know when it's the major signs of him being at the door. And how much of our discipleship should be fueled and filled with that reality? I'll just throw a couple things out there. When we talk about joy, hope, perseverance, holiness, the deep roots of, of our faith. Why is it that the apostles themselves put all of those things in connection with the second coming of our Lord and said, if you have the second coming before you and you have that understanding, that is the place from which you are drawing 
into your nature, perseverance, hope, joy. That is the impetus. That's the stimulation for you to purify yourself. As 1 John 2 says, anyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. As 2 Corinthians 7, coming out of 6 says, all of the promises in 6 are about the Lord returning and dwelling on this earth with us forever and ever and making his home here. And it says, in light of the surpassing greatness of these promises, let us go on and purify ourselves from everything that defiles body and spirit, perfecting holiness under the fear of the Lord. And so what I'm up here to give to you and to give my two cents worth is that that grief that I felt is the word that I finally understood is because... Whoever wanted to, whoever made a dinner for their spouse or was courting somebody, dating somebody or whatever, or asked someone on the date that didn't show up, whoever did something special for their, their person only to have them not show up or not appreciate. Can anybody relate? I think we've all been on both sides of that one, right? <laughs> Especially the guys. <laughs> we probably fall more on the one. <laughs> Our Messiah and wisdom has prepared a feast and put it out before us and has called to everybody who's lacking wisdom, anybody lacking wisdom, to come and eat that feast, to sit at that table prepared. And how lonely is the Messiah who is in heaven And the culmination of all of our labors, all of our faith, all of our prayers is to come into alignment with His desire to come back to the earth to be with us so that His Father can come back to the earth and be our Father face to face forever and ever. How is it that we didn't show up for that barbecue? How is it that we aren't feeding our flock that that's not the subject that they want to hear about and we want to give them so that people have to say, can you preach something else, buddy? So to connect this to some of these, the grand themes, you know, who knows? There's a lot. There's grand themes in Scripture. There's grand themes for, for believers. There's defining realities that sit over those grand themes. There's defining reality. Let's identity. Let's speak specifically to identity. How many people know what it's like to not have an understanding of what sonship is before the Father? To be a bastard in the kingdom. And you ain't a bastard because he made you a bastard. You're a bastard because you still think you're a bastard or an orphan, whatever you prefer. Right? Same reality. Number two, so that's our relationship with the Father, the first person of the Trinity, right? Our defining identity with the second person is a bride, right? We best interact with the Father, understanding that we're adopted child included into the kingdom. We best, our optimal interaction with the Messiah is knowing that we're a bride, Currently, an espoused bride 
whose beloved went away to a far land and is delayed. Currently, the heavens are retaining him. If you come to relate to him properly, the overshadowing condition of your heart is to go, when are you coming to get me, buddy? When are you coming? If you don't look and see in the scriptures what your identity is with the Messiah, no matter how much you're involved with revival, let me put it this way. If you're involved with revival, if you have intercessory burdens that you've prayed through, how many of us know prophecy is going to be fulfilled? Burdens are going to be taken away. Promises are going to be fulfilled. What will we have on the table for the billions of years that comes afterward? When everything we labor for consummates and a new age begins. How much do you want to run into that reality? How wide do you want the opening to be? And what if... Tapping into that eternal reality is what's supposed to fuel your perseverance right now. What if tapping into that reality is what's supposed to provoke you to purify yourself, to keep yourself clean for your beloved who's coming, coming one day? To provoke you to go further, to go harder. What if that love wine that he put in his cup to give to you on this earth is what keeps you from being offended. Not the five hours in the prayer meeting after somebody trash-talked you. What if it's just a sip of his wine? What if it's experiencing union with him now in the fellowship of his sufferings, knowing that it's working for you in eternal weight of glory? What if it's your posture of love and devotion and you understanding who you are and who he is to you? What if that's what stirs his heart to move in the way that he wants to move? Now, could we say it this way? What would move any sensitive person, maybe a father with their kid, or a husband with a wife, a wife with a husband. That's a good one. Husbands need to be moving their wives, right? <laughs> I can tell you, I could do a 10 things off the to-do list for my wife. But if I find one way to talk to her so that she feels loved, valued, and understood, man, that's rocket fuel. You know that'll that that's like get that'll get us through weeks. Right? So what if when it says the spirit and the bride say come, what if it's a qualitative change to how we cry out come that means more in the kingdom of God than doing it for 24 hours? And what if he prophesied that 24-7 was going to be a reality in the earth before he returns? He means 24-7 of an acceptable sacrifice. 
In Malachi chapter 1, he means an offering of fragrant incense. That is not a broken identity that's desperate with no consciousness of a fulfilled promise, no experience of the resurrection, no hope of glory. What if it's that 24-7? What if the, the thing that Lewis is talking about is a token to call us into something? He's leaving a, a testimony and a witness to try to convince his bride that she's better than what she thinks. She's worthy of more than she could ever imagine. And it's our job to properly interpret the drops that he leaves, the messages that he sends. It's our job to properly interpret it and to assimilate it into our nature so that we don't become puffed up. Rather, we become a submitted bride covered in His glory, longing for Him to come back. What if our main impetus for revival is so that His promise, the the requirement for His coming can be fulfilled so He can come? Let me unpack a little scripture on you. Show you I'm not just like speaking a game, right? In Acts chapter 3, so I, I kind of chose this one because I figured everybody's, you know, relatively familiar, right? We love Acts, we love the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we love what happened. I mean, I love the, the sermon that Peter preached. It's pretty incredible. In verse 19, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing, hello, revival, personal or corporate, may come from the presence of the Lord, Come out from the presence of the Lord. Shoot out, blast out, pour out, right? And that he may send you Jesus. The harvest of the nations and the breaking out of revival is just a stepping stone so that he can send Jesus, whom the heavens must retain. Until the time of the the fullness, the restoration of the fullness of all things. The age to come. Until the time comes when that mighty man of God storms forth and kicks the doors off the gate in the barn. Comes in to those ancient gates. The king of glory comes in and puts down that staff. And the glory of God begins to resound out with permanence across the earth. Permanence. The transformation and the reclamation of the created order will not happen without the man of God, Jesus Christ, on his throne in this earth with an army of beautiful, resurrected, bride-filled people. What if revival 
in our hearts and thus far a lot of in our culture, we've stopped at times of refreshing, right? It's been the end, what we're striving for. So I'm up here saying, let's get the greater. That he may send Jesus. That he may send Jesus. That he may send Jesus. Because isn't it true, he's not sending He's not sending the Messiah back to a broken, busted down people. He's sending him back. Let's borrow from two, two realities. Priesthood of Melchizedek, which I don't know this experientially, but I do know this from searching the scripture and meditating. The reality that he started talking about is the realities of the priesthood of Melchizedek, where the angels begin to ascend and descend and they work about by God's mighty power the reclamation of the earth and the works of our God. Then the description of going in and, and will you just agree with me? <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. It says about the priesthood of Melchizedek that the goal is the preparation that his people would freely volunteer in the day of his power from out of the womb of the dawn in the beauties of holiness. Its most true fulfillment is an army of resurrected people standing on that sea of glass, receiving their, their resurrected bodies and ready to march into the world and take it over for the glory of God with the Messiah. Its lesser fulfillment is before the second coming. How it's translated in the bride is a bride who has adorned herself and made herself ready, clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints, pure and white linen, not showing up defiled and, and funked up, not showing up not knowing who and what she is, not showing up lacking glory, confidence, Faith, instead of hope, expectation, a firm, joyful expectation in who her God is for her and for the world and who she is to her God. This hope is an anchor to the soul which takes us into the holy place where Jesus Christ has gone before us according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope can take us all the way, baby. <laughs> all the way. Come on. All the way. This hope is a steam engine not dependent on what you can do. This is a hope that is strengthened out of His glorious might to the attaining of steadfast endurance, perseverance with joy. With joy. This is the faith that overcomes the world. Even our faith. That faith. So, Melchizedek. So you see it, the army of people, Melchizedek. You see it in the bride. A bride clothed in white linen. Clean and bright. The righteous deeds of the saints. Real spirituality. Real beauty and glory. Beauties of holiness. Revival. Your little tokens of devotion in your life. 
are supposed to testify. I'm, I'm to be beautified. I'm to be adorned. I'm to be beautiful. How happy is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose, whose transgressions, whose lawless deeds the Lord does not take into account. How happy is that man? How blessed is that man? The sense of blessedness that comes from being released from sins so you can enter into the priesthood. Washed from sins, washed from transgressions to enter into this new creation, this new identity. This must come to pass before it must. It must come to pass. Why? You can tell from one scripture. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come. Say, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Anyone who has ears, let him come to the fountain, the waters of the springs and the fountains, the waters of life, to drink and take from it without cost. So I'm going to finish up with this. Did everybody see it in Acts 3 there? Did I do an okay job of trying to say that? Okay. Let's just ruminate on identity, you know, because the son thing is really, I'd say like the concept of being a son of God has probably worked pretty well, worked, it permeated is what I'm trying to say, into a lot of the church culture at this point. I mean, would you guys agree? Yeah. I would too. The phraseology, let's hit faith, hope, and love really fast. The phraseology of the bride is obviously mounting up and it's, I think maybe it's always been there. It's certainly always been there in a token in the mystics on the sidelines, but it's becoming very common. I don't think I would have heard about it if it hadn't become common, right? (laughs) (laughs) So let's give a little understanding of where we got to take this thing. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, all faith requires is hearing the word of God and trusting that it's true and developing a conviction about it, right? Is that a decent explanation of faith? Hearing something true, believing that it's true, and developing a conviction, taking a stand on it. Hope, of course, we always got to clarify this in American reality because hope has become such a distorted word. Not, I hope I win the lottery, you know. Bible hope is that firm expectation even joyful, confident expectation. How can you expect something? Because you've tasted a little bit of it. It's a first fruits reality, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Having tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Okay, hope, hope is a reality that's based on an introductory experience which you have the opportunity for it to be solidified through tribulation and persecution, Romans 5, 1 through 5. You have, uh, that's like a steroids injection, right? If you've got a little hope and you go through something tough, it's, in the kingdom it's supposed to be a, a steroid injection into your hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your experience of 
Christ in me, the hope of glory, it's supposed to be a different steroid injection into your hope. Right? You're supposed to walk away going, I am going to be something awesome. This new creation, this thing that overcome the world, the work of my God, this is awesome. I can't wait for him to bring the fullness. I can't wait for you to bring the fullness. I'm not going to call what I have right now the fullness. There's, I see it too clearly. And I can't wait for it though. But me tasting it is causing me to see it more clearly and to have a firm expectation that it's coming, that the word of God is true. Right? Now love is a more mature reality. We're not talking about fairy love. We're not talking about roses and unicorns. We're talking about agape action love we're talking about the love that presses through that goes through the fire to get to the other side happily talking about fervent love sacrificial love we're talking about a possessed love that we saw in the apostles a possessed love that we saw in the man jesus christ this is the love This is the promise to our God. This is the cry out for Him to come. This is our agreement, beginning with faith that it's true. Having the introductory experience fuel us into a confident expectation, rejecting and breaking off falsehood, casting off that that devil speak that tells us that we're still dirty, Provoking us to deal with sin instead of hiding it or shuffling it over or pretending. If we do that, love, creating the landing strip for the mature expression of grace and glory. What would provoke a lover to come back? Doing all the chores in the house? What's going to speak to the lover? Setting the table with love. The marriage carriage lovingly fitted by the daughters of Jerusalem. That's what gets him to move through the earth. Love. In that comes affections. In that comes our adoration. But we know that we've stopped short if it's not that firm, mature, steamrolling truck that goes through it and comes out the other side brighter, hotter, ready for more. Knowing that in the furnace of affliction, it's just an opportunity to find Him because He can't stand to be away from us. He did it so much that he left something. When he had to leave, he left something so that we would know his good intention. Let's talk about communion. Did you know communion sits under the second coming? How many of you think about the second coming when you go take communion? Praise God. Because why did he do it? It's a placeholder, isn't it? Eat this, drink this, until I return. It's supposed to testify. Testify of something. It's supposed, it's an impartation of grace for us to look and long for his return. Because a cup and a biscuit, even when they're supercharged with glory and grace, 
isn't the same as Him. Doing it with His Spirit isn't the full package. Isn't the end. It's just the first step. So that He could accomplish His... The Father's promise could be made real to Him. He didn't say, ask of me and I'll give you a small percentage. (coughs) Ask of me and I will give you the nations your inheritance and the uttermost earth is your possession. Don't you know that's where they got? This gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the ends of the earth and then he'll come. All the nations having that witness, all the nations having the spirit and the bride saying, come. All the nations prepared and longing for him to come. All the nations knowing that when he gets back, our beautiful life is just beginning. And it's starting with a party. So, I'm going to finish with this. I want to read you two scriptures from Song of Songs. Since there's a lot of leadership in the room, right? It's a good thing. I'm just saying that's the crowd. Um, someone's phone. <laughs> All the happy children. <laughs> Love is awakening. Fluttering. <laughs> Here's what's kind of fun. You know the, the different words in Greek for love, you know? Eros and uh, what's the bad one? No, Eros just means, you know, you're going to get something out of the deal. No. Come on, man. It's one that isn't in the Bible very much. It's usually like... Anyway, there's a really bad one that isn't going to get redeemed, right? It's like the base of unclean desires and everything nasty that's going on. Okay? So that one, you know, it's going to get kicked out. But isn't it interesting, like when we came to Jesus, didn't we start with Eros? Didn't we see him for what we could get out of him? Right? And, you know, then it goes on, right? And it turns into phileo. We start to have this affinity with some of his desires and his thoughts and his agenda. And we start to have this affinity with him, right? And, you know, if, it, if we walk through, then, you know, eventually we're like rocking up and we actually get to agape where, you know, we'll go be crucified upside down. And we'll, you know, wash the feet of, of the people who reject us or whatever with a happy heart. Right. And uh, but with him, isn't it interesting? It works in opposite. He starts with agape with us. He starts with, you know, God so agape the world that he sent his son and the son comes out of agape to love us that way. And as we mature, he's able to open up his heart and have phileo with us. He's able to share things, shared experience. It's like this is really big for like, you know, a husband and and his soon-to-be wife, you know, our father and a son. And it ends in, dun, dun, dun. 
Is it a little controversial to say that he can get something out of it, that he would look at us and be possessed with a desire because of what he can get from us? Okay, that it might go down a little rough at first blush, but the longer you chew on that meat, you realize, no, this is, this is it. In the end, I'm going to be the one that he looks at and he says, turn away from me. One look from your eyes is like confusing me and dazzling me. Come closer. <laughs> it's going to end where honey and milk are under our tongue. Wine is flowing out of us to him, delighting the God in heaven, delighting the man Christ Jesus with our love and him delighting us. It's going to end in a love fest. Right? So it's this convergence. He's starting, you know, in the better place and we're starting in the not so better place. And it's going to explode and meet in a fullness in the age to come. But here's the thing. Don't we know that our capacity is enlarged to receive a greater reward the more that we get before we see him? Is that Bible truth or not? So let me call you into the Song of Songs for a different purpose. This thing is not just for all believers. This thing is a paradigm for end time leaders. You want to see how you become that roaring river. Many many waters cannot quench this love. You want to see how you become that? Get in that. As a believer, as a company of leaders. She she was someone who had authority. Listen to the, the, the first verse and listen to where she was. And then listen to where she finishes. I'm black but lovely, I'm dark, I'm burned. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like those goat herder tents out in the wilderness, cracked and baked and rough, like the curtains of Solomon, lacy, frilly. Don't stare at me, daughters of Jerusalem, because I'm I'm distorted by the sun, by life under the sun, life in this world. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I didn't take care of. Oh, you who pastures the flock, where do you make them lie down? They made her a leader and she came to a place where she's burnt out. The flock is still following her. They're still following after this, 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 this person because the authority and the calling of God in her life. But her inner testimony is, I've got nothing on the inside. Burnout. To the point where she says, don't even follow me anymore. I reject the call of God for leadership on my life. I'm not worthy of that calling. He made a mistake. That place, that language... That emptiness, that hope deferred, which is of the old creation, that hope deferred is just you walking up to the threshold of reality and truth of who you are in the Messiah. And here's the thing. Don't stop there and walk away. Take the rebuke. Take it. Take it like a good kid, knowing that your father loves you. Take it and humble yourself and be taken in, into the eternal reality of who you are. 
into the love feast, into the place where even as the introduction, you're sitting underneath the tree that is the Messiah and his fruit is sweet to your taste and pleasure and joy and satisfaction are springing up from your soul. And in that place, he comes and he takes you into the deep place, the house of wine, the house of wisdom, into the reality of the age to come to give you a flavor of that so that you can go and be that in the world just as he was. The experience of the powers of the age to come on the vessel that's still in this age testifying to the coming kingdom by a manifestation of grace and glory and beauty and faith, not through words, but through actions, through power, the power of an indestructible life. To the point, here's what we learn at the end, right? Chapter 8, verse 13. This is him talking to her. This is him talking to the one who said, Why am I veiled like a compromised woman in the wilderness? Why am I veiled? Why am I excluded from the promise? Why is my experience detached and void of that which you've promised? This is her not settling there. This is her being willing to take the correction, not despising correction. This is her then getting for herself, who has no money, doesn't have the means to get it for herself, going to the living river and getting wine and milk. This is her going to the table and feasting on wisdom's butchered sacrifice. This is her drinking the mixed wine, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that he, I, would have, I would have perished if I did not hope and know and see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is her saying, no, it started, it started. Give it to me. Give me my down t- payment. Give me my first fruits. Give me my first fruits. It's why it was one of the feasts. By the end, this is him in heaven. The heavens are retaining him. This is what his cry is. Oh, you who sits in the deserts. No! <laughs> She's no her experience is no longer the desert, is no longer wilderness, is no longer fruitlessness. Her experience is the abundance of the gardens. Oh, you who sits in the gardens, let me hear your voice. My companions, all of heaven, we're waiting to hear your voice. Hurry, my beloved. Hurry, my beloved. And like a gazelle or a young stag, Leap upon the mountains of spices. Like the one who can't restrain his passions and his glory to come to me. And all of those things that were viewed as dangers and obstacles. All of those strongholds. The covering that covers the earth. The experience of death and corruption. Those are all, they've all been turned into a mountain of fragrance from your victory, your cross, your grace, your glory. Now, 
Leap upon them and come back to me. That's what you leap on. The one who has the victory and isn't satisfied that I'm not with you yet. Amen. So, Lord, we are all, this is communion. This is common to us all. We're all in the same boat. We have all drank of that one cup. We all drink of that one spirit. And Holy Spirit, we ask for your help as the one who is given to disclose to us everything of the Messiah. The one who is given to show us the reality of God. Will you help us? Will you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? what the Spirit is saying to your church about the Son of God and who we are to Him and who He is to us. Amen.